So I'd ask that today you go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts 20, and let's set our attention on the Word of God. As we're turning there, I'm just going to turn our focus to the Lord as we open in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank you for your love and your kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you encourage us through the Word. And we ask that today, as we open the book and as we consider the eternal Word of God, that you would indeed use it to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, that you would get to the deepest part of who we are with the Scripture. Lord, we are going to see some very practical things today, some very challenging things. And I ask, Father God, that every person who is here would be radically transformed by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, instead of reading the text up front today, what we're going to do is a little different. We're going to read the text through and do a running commentary as we go. Uh, Much of our passage today reads kind of like a travel journal or an explanation to a customs officer when you're entering a country. Uh, Where have you been? Well, this is, I kind of went there, and I went through this port, and then I went to that airport, and then I flew this direction, and I went that direction. Most of our text today reads like that. However, tucked away inside of this travel log are a number of incredible details that can serve as instructions for us about the Christian life. And right in the middle of the passage, we find a short story about a miraculous event. And from this text, what we're going to do is set our attention on four specific applications. Please follow along, starting in verse 1. It reads, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. Let's pause there. Here we've already arrived at the source of our first point of application. Notice that already it speaks twice of Paul encouraging others. So application number one, encourage one another. Notice that from this passage we know absolutely nothing about Paul's time in this region except for the fact that it was his purpose to encourage the saints. Now it's my assumption that for most of the people in the room that's not one of the first things that pops into our minds when we think about Paul and his ministry. We think about the man who was saved through incredible circumstances and unusual means of Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. We think of the incredible ministry that he has when he is traveling and writing letters to churches. We think of the way that he takes the gospel to places where the gospel has never been named. He proclaims it, and he plants churches. We think of his suffering and his imprisonments and his beatings and shipwrecks. Those things get top billing in our attention. But don't overlook the fact that a large portion of Paul's ministry was going to churches that had already been established and seeking to point them back to Jesus. What was he doing? He was encouraging them. But what does that look like? How did he encourage them? You need to understand that Christian encouragement is markedly different than worldly encouragement. The world seeks to encourage you by trying to help you forget your suffering, or maybe by ridiculing the people who are your opponents, or maybe by commiserating in your misery and feeling miserable with you, or by providing you with words of encouragement that hold no substance. You can do it. Keep your chin up. Every dark cloud has a silver lining. You get that poster of the cat. Just hang in there. That's the kind of thing that they can offer you. Consider Paul's example of biblical encouragement 
just a few chapters back in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. There it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. How? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. His encouragement was not filled with fluff. It wasn't a cat poster. And it was rooted in the substance of the gospel. We see an instructional side of this encouragement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There was encouragement to fight the good fight of faith. The Lord did not just save us and then leave us behind to figure all of this stuff out. No, he has given us instructions not just trial and error. He has given us the word to provide encouragement when we are struggling to grow in our faith. How many times have you felt like your walk with Christ is dry and barren? If you've ever felt that way, you need to understand there are people around you that feel that way as well. Encouraging one another in the Lord to continue in faith and walk in a manner worthy is part of your calling. Consider how Paul speaks about the source of this encouragement in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Brothers and sisters, if you do not know the Word of God, then you do not have the proper tools to encourage others. You can't help someone battle discouragement with pithy sayings or self-help strategies. Without the Word of God, you are lacking the ammunition that you need for that battle. Several years ago, I was in a bit of a funk myself. I had lost my joy in the Lord, and I was kind of just struggling to keep my head above water in a variety of areas of life, maybe all the areas of life. And then one of my friends, Jake Thomas, uh, I was speaking to him about how I was doing, and I just answered honestly the question, how are you doing? And I just said, life is hard right now. And his answer to me was this, well, Jesus said that in this life we're going to have many troubles, but he also said, behold, I have overcome the world. You know how amazing it is that his response wasn't complicated. It wasn't a bunch of steps to dig myself out. It was just half of one Bible verse that he mentioned in a time of need. And do you know that that was exactly what I needed to remind me of God's power in the midst of my troubles? In our text today, it doesn't say exactly what the words of encouragement were that Paul was giving to the people on this journey. It just tells us that he stayed there for three months and encouraged them. However, if we piece together the rest of Scripture, we know exactly what Paul was doing there for three months. This is the exact time period when he was sitting down and writing and then sending out what we now call the book of Romans. So what is it that he was probably talking with them about? It was probably everything that we read in the book of Romans. Do you need encouragement? How encouraging is it when you read the book of Romans and you see that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you see that you have been made alive through Jesus Christ and you get to the point where it says things like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How encouraged would that be? Encouraging would that be if you were there? You already know because you can read it for yourself and be encouraged through the word. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, you need to give that word to someone else who is in this room. 
Sometimes you need to encourage others around you, not with pithy sayings, but with the scripture, with the word of God itself. Speaking of Romans, here we see that he, uh, we just saw how he encouraged and derived uh, encouragement from scriptures in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. But I want you to look at the very next verse and see something much more significant. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Do you see that? God is described as the God of encouragement. When we encourage one another, we are just imitating our God who has encouraged us. He is the source of all true encouragement. The reason that the world is incapable of encouraging people properly is they are not funneling encouragement from the source. When we receive encouragement from God, and then we are, we are then able to pass encouragement with the word of God to the people of God. I want to encourage you to encourage others. He has encouraged us by giving us his son. He has given us life. He has provided us with daily grace. He has encouraged us with the scripture. He has encouraged us through the spirit who indwells us and who strengthens us. And we are to encourage others faithfully. It is the gospel that propels biblical encouragement. Application number one encourage one another. Application number two, use your gifts to serve one another. Look now again at your copy of the scriptures following along in Acts chapter 20 verse 3. It says, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now there are seven, there are seven named men here in this passage, and there is another that is unnamed. Perhaps you notice that in verse 3 it says, there he, speaking of Paul, spent three months. But then by the time we get down to verse 6, it reads, we sailed away. That indicates that the author, Luke, was once again with him. We see that whenever Paul is passing through Philippi, that's where he tends to drop Luke off and pick him back up. It doesn't say Philippi in this chapter. It speaks of Macedonia. That's where Philippi is. So you need to know that Luke is now with him. Of these men, they all served alongside Paul to carry out his ministry, and you need to know that Paul could not have done what he did if they did not what they, do what they did. He could not do his ministry alone. He is always surrounding himself with people who are dedicated to the task of proclaiming the good news. Some of these people eventually became pastors or elders, but most of them did not. We're given dozens of names of people that were indispensable to the cause in the Bible, but they were just using their simple gifts so that God could be glorified. They weren't doing anything that we would consider miraculous. They were doing something simple, but something necessary. As far as we know, for example, Luke was never an elder of a church, but he was a doctor and he was a writer. Now, if anybody ever in the history of the world needed to travel with a doctor, it was Paul. Praise God, he's got one right there. He gets dragged out of a city and stoned till they think he's dead. Guess what? He happens to have a good friend nearby who can bind up his wounds and nurse him back to health. 
praise God. He was also a writer. And so as Paul is speaking and teaching the words of God, Luke is chronicling the history of who Jesus is and the works that God was doing continually through Paul on the mission field. Luke used his gifts of being a doctor and being a writer and a historian for the great cause of writing our New Testament. And praise God, he wrote more than anyone else in terms of word count in our New Testaments. More than Paul himself, Luke wrote. Now, of course, we know that Paul referred to Timothy as his true son in the faith. We know that he started out as a helper on the mission field, but eventually he did become a pastor at the church of Ephesus. And we learn from the books of First and Second Timothy that his gifts were definitely not identical to that of Paul, but we also know that he was called to preach the same gospel. But Timothy did not start out behind a pulpit. Timothy started out carrying the luggage. That was his job, doing the menial tasks, probably cooking and setting up the camp and tearing it down when they were traveling. He just used the simple gifts that he had, and God grew him into greater tasks. Tychicus, on the other hand, was probably never a preacher, but he was no less important for the mission. Paul refers to him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, as, quote, a faithful minister and fellow servant. But what was his ministry? All we know about his special skills is that he was really good at walking. That's it. Why do we know that? Because he was Paul's mailman who delivered the letters from one place to another. He would take what we now carry in our Bibles, the Word of God, and he would carry the original copies from the hand of Paul to the place where it needed to go. We know for certain that Tychicus is the one who carried the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Titus. He was also entrusted, along with Secundus, to carry a large sum of money, a financial collection, to Jerusalem to help the church there. But let's be clear. The letters of Paul are worth far more than all the gold in the world, and he was entrusted to carry those original copies. Just because he was faithful and he was gifted with the skill of traveling well, he was entrusted with his incredibly important task. Of Gaius and Aristarchus, we know that they have some connections with one another because they were both seized by an angry mob in the previous chapter. Remember when Mike was talking about these men who were grabbed and they were taken in and they were chanting in great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, here we see that's those two guys. They must have had some connection with one another. As far as we can tell, neither one of them were pastors. In Romans chapter 16, verse 24, Paul tells us that Gaius was his host meaning that he housed Paul. That's where he stayed when he was in this region. He simply used the gift of hospitality. But that gift of hospitality dramatically impacted Paul's ability to spread the gospel. And Aristarchus, well, we learn from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that he was imprisoned later with Paul when he finally made it to Rome. You don't have to have a lot of skills to be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. You just have to be faithful. We have very little knowledge about Trophimus, and this is the only mention in the Bible of Sopater, the Berean, but we can be certain that these were faithful servants of God. Here's the point. Whatever your gifts are, use them. But let's not get things all twisted around. We serve one another because we have been served by Christ. It is our great King Jesus who said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came for you to serve you, to be a, become a servant and take on the form of not just a man, but a servant for you. 
And even today, what we call this, what we are doing right now, a worship service. Please understand, when you gather together, you are coming to worship God. But even in the midst of that, he is serving you. The service is for you. God is filling your mind with knowledge and your heart with joy and your fellowship with peace. He is serving you. It's important for us to understand that our service is not one that is earning us anything. It is one that is reflective of that we have been given everything. We serve well when we realize that we have been served well. God designed us to serve one another. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 says it this way. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love that term, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that, strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you realize that first of all, he speaks about this varied grace, the multifaceted grace of God that comes to you in the form of giving you ways to serve. And he says, in that when you serve, whatever your gifts are, it is through that that God gets glory and dominion. He is lifted high. People are able to understand and perceive his greatness and his worthiness when we serve well. Peter refers to your gifts and abilities, your gifts and abilities, the one that you have, whatever it is that you are good at. He says that is his, God's varied grace in your life. Paul refers to this very grace as the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's not just for you. It's for you to use for the service of others. So are you using your gifts to support the body of Christ? Are you actively seeking ways to show hospitality like Aristarchus and Gaius? Are you seeking to join others in their trials? Are you seeking to help with the building? Are you seeking to join in outreach? Many of the needs that we have in the church are seemingly small. They are menial. They are somewhat, from the outsider's perspective, insignificant. But they all add up to a mountain of responsibilities. Paul needed faithful servants to surround him. And we, as a body of Christ, need one another. God has provided you with a unique set of gifts that nobody else replicates in this room. Serve one another with your gifts. Application three, gather with one another. Look again at your Bibles. Look down to verse 7. Here we read that on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, this one verse is actually surprisingly dense. It could provide multiple sermons on its own. We're going to try to go through it quickly. Notice first when it is that the church of Troas would regularly gather. It was Sunday, the first day of the week. Why is it that we as a church gather on Sunday? Why not Saturdays, like they did in the Old Testament? Why not Wednesdays or Fridays? Why is it that we set apart and, and make a point of asking our members to gather together on Sunday morning? Well, here's the answer. We meet on the first day of the week because that is exactly what the church has been doing ever since the Lord arose on the first day of the week. It is that day that he first appeared to his disciples, and then he delayed and did not appear to them again until the next Lord's day. 
the next first day of the week. And that set the cycle in place, and that has been the practice of the Christian church ever since that day. Now, it's important for us to understand that the Sabbath has not moved to Sunday. We do not gather on the Sabbath. We do not practice the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. Think about the underlying message of the Sabbath. Think about the Old Covenant. It's a covenant of works. Consider the fact that it required you to keep the commandments and to serve God and to work hard all week long. And that at the end of your works, at the end of your labors, after you have done everything you can for the Lord, then you rest. The Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, when we gather, it is giving a different picture. We gather at the beginning of the week because we acknowledge that God has worked for us. He has served us. He has saved us. He has arisen and is ruling over us. So we gather to celebrate the risen Christ on the first day of every week, and then we spend the rest of the week not working our way to him or for him. We spend the rest of the week responding to what he has already done, what he has accomplished. Some churches celebrate what they call the ecumenical calendar, the annual calendar of when you have you know, if you've got Lent and you've got Advent, you've got all these different things spread across the year. We don't see any of that in the Bible. What we do see in the, cal- in the Bible is a calendar, and the calendar starts over every week, Sunday morning. That is the Christian calendar when we gather to worship on the Lord's Day. It's also important to point out that there was no such thing as a weekend in the first century. The Jews, of course, took off one day a week, sab- the Sabbath, Saturday, Everyone else took off a grand total of zero days during the week, and it wasn't until the year 319 that Constantine created the empire-wide weekend of one day off, and it was many centuries later that we, as probably lazy modern people, realized, oh, we should actually take a second day off, and so now we have two days off a week. They would not have comprehended this. So when it says that they had gathered to break bread, That is a technical term for the part of the worship service they were using to gather. It was a reference to the fact that this was their evening gathering. You see, the early church would typically gather twice a day on Sundays because it was a work day. They would go before work early in the morning, right about the time of sunrise. At that point, they would get together, they would circle up with one another, they would sing songs together, and they would pray. And then they would separate. They would go to work all day long. They would work between 8 and 12-hour shifts. And then after their extended shifts, they would come back together at the end of the day. And because most of them were not able to go home before returning to church, they would have a meal together there. So when it says that they were gathered together to break bread, it says they gathered together at this time for the evening service. So most of these people, consider them, they had probably gotten up, at sunrise, they walked a great distance to be at the service. They'd walked to work, and then they walked a long way back to be at the service that evening. And they were so grateful that they were able to gather. They desired earnestly to be with one another, so much so that they built their entire day around being with one another. Hebrews chapter 25, uh, 10, verse 25, ties together gathering with the saints alongside what we've already talked about, the regular practice of encouragement. Consider what it says. He says, not neglecting to meet with together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, you can't encourage people unless you meet with them, unless you are with them. He's telling us here that we are not to neglect gathering together. Brothers and sisters, this text puts us to shame. 
We have no excuses. We have every convenience the modern world has provided. We have a day off to gather. We have cars to travel. We have a parking lot that we can fill up. And by the way, if it's full, the neighbors next door have graciously allowed us to fill up that parking lot as well. We have no excuse. We have a climate-controlled, comfortable, centrally located building right off the highway. We have no excuse, brothers and sisters. Consider the fact that even today, literally this day, there are people who are gathering with one another at risk to their own freedom and safety. In countries like North Korea and Burma, Christians are literally gathering in the midst of fear that they might be arrested just for doing what we are doing right now. And why are they doing that? Because they would rather die than give up fellowship with the saints. These believers in Acts chapter 20 didn't have it easy. It was illegal for them to do what they were doing, yet they were faithfully gathering together on the first day of the week. And I want to encourage you to give the highest of priorities to gathering together with the people of God. That includes the Sunday morning service, but it goes far beyond that as well. I want to encourage you to gather with your community group, members of the church. I want to encourage you to gather together at the equipping hour on Tuesday night. That's open to everybody. I want to encourage you to gather if you are in the youth group or young adult ministry. I want to encourage you to gather for the men's breakfast and the women's Bible and brunch. Gather together by inviting people for a meal at your house. Gather together for a prayer breakfast at a diner. You say, I don't have a space at my home where I can show hospitality. You can go to the diner and you can buy somebody a cup of coffee. Gather together and serve someone in the church that has a practical need. The word church literally means the gathering. The idea of a Christian being separated from the church is a foreign concept to the New Testament. Gather together. I would also encourage us today to make it a priority to be here early before church begins so that we join in worship as soon as service starts. Now, I say this in love uh, and concern for you. And parents, I particularly want to nudge you about the unspoken message that you are sending to your children when you are late to church. If you make a big deal about getting your kids to school on time, but do not make a big deal about getting to church on time, then you are telling them that college is more important than Christ. You are telling them that getting into Harvard is more valuable than getting into heaven. Husbands and wives, I want to encourage you if you are consistently able to get to work on time, but you do not prioritize getting to church on time, you are revealing that there is a deep and insidious confusion about what is truly valuable in your life. Part of gathering together means doing your best to gather at the time we have committed to gather, which, by the way, you know is 10 o'clock Sunday mornings. Let's do our best to gather with one another. Application three. Application four. Stay awake during the sermon. <laughs> Now, I'm partly joking, but let's see what happens in verse 8. It says, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. 
Now, perhaps you think that the application point should be for me to preach shorter sermons. Um, now, I know that I have preached some long sermons, some that were so long that people did fall asleep, but we can all agree that at least to this point, I have never preached so long that somebody has died. I have never killed anyone. <laughs> In these verses, we are talking about a boy named Eutychus. The word boy there tells us that he's probably between 8 and 14 years old. He's what we would call a preteen. And his name, Eutychus, literally means fortunate son or the lucky one. How ironic is that? It's this young man that was listening to Paul after a long period of Paul's conversation, and he was in that upper room that was so packed he probably had no place to sit but the windowsill. And who could blame him for feeling the warmth of the lamps in the coolness of the night and then falling into a deep sleep? Not just a normal sleep like most of us in the room, but a preteen style sleep. If you have ever been with preteens, you know that is like that he was already dead before he fell out the window. He was so asleep. But imagine the shift of the tone of the night when this, boy's, this boy, whose parents were probably in that room with them, fell out the window and died. Imagine the shouts of horror when they saw him fall and then rushed down the stairs only to find his body lying cold on the cobblestones. What must have the mood been like when they found him dead? But Paul, in the power of the Spirit, raised the boy back to life. Now here's the thing. If you just keep reading the story, it seems like to most of the people in the room, it becomes no big deal. Luke doesn't sensationalize this miracle at all. In fact, it's written about like it's just a strange interruption to their worship service, which brings me to what I believe is the main point of this passage. Notice that when they went back into the house after Eutychus was raised, they went right back to doing what they were doing before. Luke says in verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. That word conversed is the word homilesis, which is where we get our word homiletics, which is just a fancy way of speaking about how pastors prepare sermons. He was not just talking about the weather. He was preaching the gospel to them. Paul was telling them about Christ until the sun came up, and they were hanging on every word. The point was not the miracle. The point was the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I think that is the main point of this passage. There are a million ways that we could swerve away from the main thing. There are a million things that could cause us to be distracted. If there was ever an excuse for a church service to be derailed, it was the tragic death of a young man in the midst of their service. And if there was anything beyond that, it's the fact that that very same young man was raised to life in the middle of their service. Boy, could that derail the focus. But the word of God is more precious than anything else Paul could have given the people of Troas. The miracle could only give the boy momentary, vapor-like life back. He would die again. But the word of God is the tool that God uses to give us eternal life. So I was somewhat speaking tongue-in-cheek when I said that our fourth application point was to stay awake in church. But I'm not when I say that sitting under the preaching of the Word of God should be something that we do strive for. We should work hard at getting enough sleep the night before church. We should remove distractions so that we are able to engage with the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. The reason that I encourage people to use a 
physical copy of the Bible rather than their phone is because I know how distracting my phone is to me. Eliminate distractions as much as you can so that you set your attention, your focus on the Word of God. How crazy is it that we could be more distracted by a small notification from the news on our phone than this group of people in Troas was when a child died and was raised back to life? Let's try to remove all distractions and set our attention, our focus on the Word of God. The real name of application point number four could be grow in your delight of hearing the Word. Here's how we're going to move forward for the rest of our service. In just a moment, I'm going to walk out the door behind me and I'm going to preach at another church that is hurting right now and is without a pastor. And I'm going to go and I'm going to encourage them. And I'm going to use whatever gifts the Lord has given me to preach to them. And I will gather together with them as they delight in the word. So I'm going to immediately apply this sermon. And you are going to continue to worship the Lord here as the service continues. And after a few songs, we're going to do a time of fellowship. Now, you may be familiar with this because we've done this many times where we just say, stand up, find somebody you don't know, and, and talk to them. However, this time of fellowship is going to be a little bit more guided this time around. I'm going to ask that you look at people around you. You find a couple of them. Don't bounce around all over the room. Just find some people that are relatively near you. And you're going to ask each other, which of the four points of today's sermon is the one that is most necessary as a growth point in your life? And don't worry if you don't have them written down. They'll be up here on the screen for you. And so you're going to discuss that for just a few minutes. And then I'm going to ask that you take time to pray with one another. Pray that you would grow in those ways together. Pray also while you're praying for me, as at that time I will probably be preaching the word at another congregation. And I ask that you would pray that the Lord would grow us so that we would be like this church in Troas who loves the word of God, who encourages one another, who fellowships with one another, and who serves one another. Let's pray that God would do that in our midst today. Father God, we love you. I pray that our love for you would be displayed in our love for each other and our love for the word. I ask, Lord, that those things would grow in measure, that you would cause us to be more like Christ in the way that we rely upon you, we consider you. Lord, I pray that today, if there is anyone who is convicted in any of these ways, Lord, that you would bring repentance and spiritual growth so that we might honor one another and honor you in the way that we live this Christian life. We pray, Lord, thanking you that you saved this young man, Eutychus, from dying. But we thank you all the more that you have sent your son to die for us and that you raised him for us so that we might have life eternal. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in that. And as we continue with our service now and celebrate what you have done, and as we sing to you today, Lord, I pray that you would be pleased and receive glory and honor from our lips and from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.